Well, normally my, um, my usual crowd is considerably uh, more rambunctious. We'll say it's, a, it's the Tuesday night, Tuesday night bunch, and so it involves a lot more uh, finger pointing and don't hit him and stop talking to them. And so don't be afraid. I will call you out if I see you, um, if I see you talking. And Chad, you, you reminded me of something that I have not thought of in decades. Not only can Amazing Grace be sung to the tune of House of the Rising Sun, but can also be sung to the tune of Gilgan's Island. Let that roll through your head for a little while. Um, if, if I have time, <laughs> which I probably will. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, now you're singing it, aren't you? <laughs> so my name is Matt Ferris, and um, I was asked to, asked to share my story to, uh, to kind of fill in while, while Greg's out, while Greg's taking a break. And, and I was supposed to originally talk some, sometime in November, so I had tons of time. So Rob Grindy uh, sent me a text one evening and said, hey, man, you know, something came up. Can we switch? I'm like, sure, send me the date. What's the date? October 21st. I'm like, oh, oh, good. Now I have even less time to be concerned and um, sweat it out. So actually, this is a good thing because um, my ulcer has less time to... Uh, to grow and to grow out of control and the like. It's a, um, because I'll be honest, I am, uh, I'm nervous. So if my voice falters a little bit, I'll throw the apologies out now because um, not only is this a different audience than I generally um, talk to, I'm going to tell you my story. And my story hurts. And it hurts me. I mean, this last Tuesday, I was sitting in our little office on a computer crying just thinking about it because these are things I hadn't thought about on purpose for a long, long time. So any apologies, I'll throw them out now. And um, even my own daughters don't even know most of this. So we're in for a treat. <laughs> but um, I was asked to share my story. And my story, really, it's, it's not all that exciting. And if you just look at it right at the surface, it's, um, it's something that, uh, that needs to be told, but again, right at the surface, which is where we keep most of our relationships. Um, you know, it's nice. Just like we tell each other every day, every morning at church, you say, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm great. Doing super. But you know what? There's always, there's always a story right underneath that fine, because maybe everything isn't fine. But you know, the person that asked you, they're just wanting to throw out a nicety and then move on. And we've all done it. I did it this morning. I probably did it about, I don't know, when did we greet each other? That's when I did it. <laughs> and so I apologize if I gave off that vibe, but um, that's where we are. So just like every good story, I'm going to start at the beginning. So the, uh, right on the surface, I was raised in a Christian home and accepted Christ at an early age. I attended school, moved around some, and eventually found myself growing up in Southern California, where I met the love of my life in high school. We got married, had some adventures, had a couple of kids, and here we are today. I mean, it's, that's it. We're blessed beyond all reason, far more blessed than, than we certainly deserve. And if that was all there was to the story, and I said, all right, thanks for coming, everybody. Final hymn. 
you all would be thinking, well, <laughs> at least we're going to get out on time tonight. <laughs> or you'd be thinking something like, well, isn't that nice? <laughs> but that's not the whole story. Just like everybody in this room, that's never the whole story. We're not getting out that quite that early because everything I said, it was true, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And that's something that I struggled with for a long time because I've been a Christian for a long time. I accepted Christ when I was probably five or six years old. I believe with all my heart that I became a Christian. I fell under the, under the, under the blood of Christ at that moment. Now, granted, there's a long, painful sanctification process in there, and God was good, but I believe with all my heart, had I died between then and now, I'd be in the presence of God. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm at peace with that. But because of that, I assumed that I had nothing to share because I didn't have a, a, big, a big grand story of redemption and rescue and, and you know, in the finding myself in the dregs of society and Christ reaching down into the mud and pulling me out, that, that wasn't my story. And I struggled with that all through high school and, and growing up, my early 20s, I'm like, what have I got? I've got no testimony. It's like, well, um, I grew up in a middle-class America, and I became a Christian. That's it. That's my story. <laughs> but it turns out that there is, a, um, there is a lot we have to share. Because the fact is, is that my redemption was just as costly as any, any degenerate sinner out there like me. So let me fill in the blanks. So I was born in Phoenix, Arizona in the early 70s. And my earliest memory is going to see Star Wars with my dad in the theater. Hence, my love of Star Wars. It's not just because it's awesome and the best cinematic masterpiece ever, but I have a very, very visceral, emotional connection to that movie because that is my earliest memory as a child in 1977. I was going to see that movie in the theater with my dad, and it blew me away. Of course, I had to go to the to the bathroom at like a pivotal scene and my dad was not happy about that. <laughs> but that's, that's something different. So the, um, so again, born in the early 70s and at some point we found ourselves in, a, um, in Helena, Montana, late 70s, early 80s. I was just living the dream, riding my banana seat bike around with my friends, playing on my Atari 2600 with my two brothers. This was fresh out of the box, Atari 2600, the finest 8-bit graphics that money could buy. Now, I know that that wasn't a big deal to all, to, to all the kids in the audience nowadays with all their fancy graphics, but Donkey Kong was mind-blowing. And so that was, a, um, that was something that uh, it really helped inform my childhood. It was there in Montana that I just I felt the love of my parents I felt the love of friends. You know, I got, I, I beat up kids at school. I got beat up at school. I got thrown off. You know that, that twirly merry-go-round thing? That, that spinning death trap that, would, that was trying to fling you off into oblivion? I grew up on that thing, and it was just amazing. Um, I, feel, I, feel kids, I feel kids are missing something out on something out today, not being able to experience the pain of of getting repeatedly bashed by a spinning piece of metal. <laughs> but, the, um, but the fact is, is that amidst of what I saw as all that love, 
there was a story going on that was, that was outside of my, my eight-year-old perception. There, was, there were dramas and there were, there were tragedies going on outside of, my, uh, outside of what I could see. And one night, again, the, the details are fuzzy. I was eight and it's, it, was, um, it was a hard time, but it was something I remember. So details are fuzzy, but I remember that there was one night there was... There was another man who wasn't my dad that was putting some of my mom's stuff in his car. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's weird. That's really strange. So, but I didn't think anything of it because in the mind of a child, it's, it's weird, but your life is weird, you know? That's, you know, so you just kind of, you just kind of get used to the weird. But the bomb that dropped in our lives, it was a... Um, it was when my dad came home because a neighbor of ours had called my dad and said, hey, there's some guy at your house and he's loading up a car and thought you should know. And so my dad rushed home from work and he, um, and they just had, they just had the biggest blowout fight I'd ever heard. And growing up, they didn't fight. They never yelled at each other. And so in my mind, this was the first time ever that that had happened. And, you know, I, obviously there, there'd been drama going on behind the scenes, but it was out of, it was away from us. It was away from us kids. And so they just had this knockout, dragout fight where they're screaming at each other. And I remember my younger brother, Adam, running up to my dad and kicking him and saying, stop yelling at mommy. And what did I do? I ran and hid. I went and hid in my closet. And I'm haunted by that to this day, thinking my younger brother was braver than I was. And I know God's good. There's, you know, there's grace for that, but it's a trauma. And it's there, and it's something, something we deal with, just like we all have things we're trying to deal with every day. So I ran and hid in my closet. Next thing I remember... There's my dad yelling down the hall, telling me to come out. And I was too scared to disobey. So I came out. And my dad loaded up me and my two brothers in the car. And we hit the road. All I remember is just seeing telephone posts going past this long, dark road in the middle of Montana. And he, um, I remember my dad talking to himself. And he was just wondering how if what he just did would be considered kidnapping. You know, he's just kind of running through, running through the what ifs. You know, my dad, he just saw it as taking his kids out of a bad situation. But I don't know what, in the eyes of the law, maybe that is kidnapping. And so my dad was running, literally running through the scenarios, how long is it gonna take the cops to track us down? How long is it gonna be before I see blue lights in my rearview mirror? And I had never been more scared and confused in my life because I was happy, happy, happy all childhood long, not a care in the world, and then a grenade was just left right in the middle of my little life. And this is where, be it trauma, God's mercy, where the two combine, but there's a two to three week hole in my memory, just gone. It's a blank space. Because the next thing I remember, I remember opening my eyes, and I was awake in a strange apartment in a strange part of town with my mom and my brothers, and my dad was nowhere to be seen. 
that's weird. I don't know if, I'm sure some of you have, you know, experiences and memories that, that people can tell you that that had happened and how it happened and give you the details, but it is erased from your memory. And quite honestly, I don't know that I want to remember it. Again, I think that's where God's grace stepped in and said, you don't need this. This is a burden that you don't need to be carrying. So we were in a new part of town. I was in the fourth grade, and for reasons unknown to an eight-year-old, we moved three times my, my fourth grade year, and that was, that sucked. <laughs> that's tough, because sure, you know, it's, kids make friends easily, but man, it just gets, it gets old. It gets tiresome. So eventually, after the third time, we wound up in Southern California in a small town called Calamesa, right next to another small town called Yucaipa. So if you've ever driven on I-10, driving out to, towards Arizona or Palm Springs, you drive right past our little town. Um, you probably didn't notice it. Our town consisted of County Line Road. And if you missed it, you missed the town. That's it. <laughs> um, but we had a great time there. We lived, we lived near my grandparents on their, uh, on their ranch. And they, um, they just loved us. This is my mom's parents. And, boy, my grandma and grandpa were just two amazing people. I remember growing up with my grandma. She, uh, to me, she was just my grandma. Just this classic grandma. She was patient and kind, and she baked cookies, and, and she would just feed you until you couldn't eat anymore, and it was amazing. And I found out later that, like in her younger days, she was a, a ship welder during World War II in San Francisco Bay, and then she could out-drink and out-cuss any sailor, you know, that, that would come through the port. She was apparently a, a real uh, razor. <laughs> the, um, but it was a, uh, and my grandpa, who was just this, you know, I found out more about him in his obituary than I ever knew about him alive, but the stories I heard was that you know, he helped, he, he worked with Howard Hughes on the Spruce Goose. And he was at Alamogordo during the, uh, during, during the nuclear testing. And at some point, he worked down the hall from Walt Disney in Burbank. You know, just, just weird. You know, he was caught up with the mob at some point. It was just a strange world that he lived in. But by the time we came around, by the time we moved in, he was broken. He was a broken sullen, silent, bitter man, because my mom had a younger brother, and at the age of about 22, 23, because of some emotional trauma going on this and that, he shot himself in their home, and this was maybe three years before we got there. So you can imagine that, yeah, maybe that's enough time to get over the initial shock and, you know, shock and trauma of the event, but that's a scar that stuck with, stuck with them forever for obvious reasons. So our family had been well, well acquainted with, um, with tragedy and with guilt. Now from that time, well into high school, again, remember the whole, the whole thing that happened with my dad and how and how he just, uh, he snatched up me and my brothers and he hit the road and then eventually through legal dealings and divorce agreements, this, that, and the other, we lived with my mom and then we visited my dad like once a year, a couple weeks over the summer. But from that time well into high school, I was raised in a constant state of fear and watchfulness. 
because um, my mom was afraid that my dad would snatch us away again. You just never knew. You just never know. My dad was lurking around every corner, just waiting to grab us. And that was tough because I remember I loved my dad. I have no bad memories growing up with my dad. And so when, when I heard stories about this, 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 mon- this boogeyman, this monster that was waiting under my bed and waiting around every bush to, to grab me, it, it created such a dissonance in my brain that, that I couldn't, I had such a hard time dealing with it. But at the same time, fear is easy. Fear is so easy to fall into. Courage is hard. Fear, fear is easy. Because, because in our sinfulness, we can, we can turn towards fear and, and anxiety just like that. Because it doesn't take any work to be afraid of something. But the... Um, but because of that, my relationship with my dad, it, it withered. It withered on the vine, and that was hard because I did love my dad. In fact, I was so frightened that, uh, I was so frightened of my dad, but I needed to keep it inside to make sure that, that my mom was okay. Because, because I had to make sure that, that she was okay, and I didn't want to burden her with anything else. So when 11-year-old Matt had to be rushed to the emergency room one night, one night because I had ulcers that were, um, that were causing uh, extreme stomach pain. And so, so the doctor's like, you know, you don't have an 11-year-old digestive system. <laughs> you have one that's not 11 years old. That was, um, and so that was a, um, I don't say that was a wake-up call because 11-year-olds don't get wake-up calls. And 11-year-olds just take the medicine that they're given and then, and then they move on with their day. So I took my medicine, and the ulcers calmed down a little bit, but I kept it in, and, and as long as everything was peaceful, everything was fine. There was never a problem. There were never any issues. There was never any, any stress or anything that would, um, that would hurt my mom. Now, the custody agreement that we had, uh, had going to visit my dad for a few weeks every summer was just awful because for years we were we spent 50 weeks of the year being afraid of this man 50 weeks and then two weeks during the summer we'd go and visit visit the monster and then my dad would try and he'd take us to the zoo and he'd take us to the fair and we'd go stay at the ymca during the day when he had to work and we really he created such a fantastic environment that we hated and we would cry, and we would carry on, and to this day, I feel so bad for what we put my dad through, because he was just trying to maintain a relationship with his boys. And that was tough. And I look back on it now, and I, I, I look, at, look at my own, my own daughters, and I think, I, I would, that would break me for my own children to be afraid of me, knowing that it wasn't because... I'm a monster. I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect, but to be to be treated like that, just unjustly, it um it hurts. And so the um my dad, he would he would he would keep trying. And every year he would send a few letters. He would keep sending letters. He'd telling us, you know what, you always have a plane ticket. You can always come visit me. Just let me know. Anytime, day or night, call me, 
write me a letter, let me know you want to visit, I'm always available. And we would shun these letters. Or I would write back and I wouldn't say, you know, Dad, I would say Tom. Thank you for the letter. Um, we won't be visiting Matt. You know, just something real short, something, something honestly, something cruel. That, that just wasn't right. But in junior high, so at some point in junior high, my mom remarried, and so I had a stepdad all of a sudden. He had two boys about the same age as, uh, as me, one a little bit older than me, and we, um, we all lived on the ranch, and we had just the most amazing and dangerous adventures living on this ranch. Uh, Goonies had just come out, so we just knew that there was going to be some sort of hidden cave in one of my grandpa's mini junk piles, because, as I said, my grandpa was eccentric. You know, he's the type of guy who would go to an auction and come home with a bulldozer. You know, not a knick-knack or a, or a soup bowl. He would come home with a fire truck. Or an, a, all the books from an abandoned library. Like, thousands of books. I mean, we have hundreds of them at our house alone. So, if, I mean, if you're interested in books, we have several from the turn of the century. Um, <laughs> It was fantastic, but um, again, they're living on this ranch, just having regular encounters with rattlesnakes and shooting tarantulas with BB guns, and, and it was um, just a fantastic place for, for boys to grow up and get dirty. My stepdad, he did his best. He really did, uh, but he had his own demons. He had his own, his own pain, his own heartache to deal with, and, and that's something you don't you don't see as a child. You, forget, you assume that the world started as soon as you got there. Not realizing that there is a whole lot of history that went before you. You're coming into a movie that's already more than half over. And you're just trying to catch up onto what's going on. And it's not only till, you know I became a parent that I, that I can only now see, you know what? My dad didn't have it figured out. My mom didn't have it figured out because I don't have it figured out. And maybe, maybe when I get to, get, to, get to your point in life, maybe you guys have it figured out, and that'll be awesome. I can't wait to get there, because you guys got it wired. <laughs> but I have a sneaking suspicion that that's just not true. Did you keep struggling? We're, the older you get, we just get better at hiding it. We just get better at, at pretending. Whereas kids, they're like, hey, I don't know how to do this thing. And then we get older, and we stop asking, and we stop being curious, and we just say, all right, what do I need to get through today? And maybe God has more than that for us. But that's a different, that's a different lesson. But my dad, he was a, he was a hard man, and he had difficulty showing, showing affection. He was constantly saying the wrong things, and he was a really good example not to follow and that's not that he didn't love us. It's not that he didn't care, but he had a really hard time showing it. But at the same time, I really don't know where else I would have learned all the lyrics to the dirty limericks that I probably shouldn't have been taught <laughs> as a child because there's some stuff in my brain I wish I wasn't there. <laughs> but I know that he cared for us. He worked hard for us, but he was tough to get close to. So in, but in high school, it was decided that me and my two brothers would be adopted by my stepdad 
And for several years, I was Matthew Phillips. And actually, to this day, I'm still... My adopted name is Matthew Phillips, but I'll get to the um, rest of that story, why, the, uh, why that screen has my name on it, why that's why I'm not a liar when I say that. But for some time, I was Matthew Phillips. And there is another story there that involves an embarrassing introduction situation that Michelle would love to tell you about that she reminded of me of just like last week. It was fantastic. when It's a whole Phillips to Ferris um, conversion that uh, she didn't know about because I didn't tell her. But God is faithful. He reached into my broken and scared heart, and he had mercy on me. And I had, I had a great time in high school. I had good friends. I had a 1969 Chevelle. And most importantly, I met Michelle Alvarez. And I know looking at this, you know, red-headed, fair-skinned beauty, you wouldn't think, Alvarez, really? <laughs> It's a Spanish thing, <laughs> so, so that's how we explain it away. <laughs> but um, I fell hard for her my senior year. And while technically it was, it was our senior year that we started dating, it, uh, we'd met several years before that, but that's, that's, a, that's, a different, that's a different fun story. Now through it all, going back to my dad, he never gave up. He kept writing, he kept, he kept trying to reach out. In fact, he, um, he, uh, he came to my high school graduation. And this was, you know, this was kind of a big thing. It was a, there was a lot of people came to this graduation. So to find, a, to find an individual person wasn't an easy thing. You know, think Pioneer Valley or Rigetti High School type of graduation, maybe half that size, but still a lot of people. But um, I never saw my dad. Never saw him. All I know is that a week or two after, after I graduated, I got an envelope in the mail with a whole bunch of pictures. You know, it's, it's from my dad. And I open it up and pictures of my graduation. I'm thinking, well, that's super weird. That's, that's kind of creepy because I didn't even know he was there. And through my, through my filter of fear, I saw that as, the dude's a stalker. The dude's trying to track me down. And then I talked to Michelle about it, and I showed her, I said, can you believe what he did? And she said, no, no I don't think, I, don't, I think you're reading this wrong. Because she'd heard the stories of my dad. And she'd, she'd heard the stories of this terrible human being who's, who just brought fear into the lives of children. And she, she, she said, no, he didn't want to ruin your day. And so he was just happy to be there. He just wanted to take pictures at your High School graduation, but he didn't want to, want to traumatize you. So he just took pictures, and then he left. And, and, and once, I was able to, once I was able to flip my viewpoint, I realized that, you know what? Maybe I've been seeing this wrong. Maybe I've been wrong about this game. My, just maybe... My fear is unfounded. That was, a, um, that was kind of a turning point. And so, for a thousand reasons why I can thank Michelle, that's another one of them. Because she helped bring me back to my dad. So it was a, um, after graduation, 
Uh, Michelle and I had been dating for, for a couple years, and, and I reached out to my dad, and I said, hey, let's meet for dinner. He lived in Phoenix. We, where we lived was about four hours away. And so, we, um, so I said, let's meet for dinner. My dad said, that's great. You know, you pick the place. I'll be there. So we were going to meet halfway. And if you're doing the, the mental map in your head, you realize a halfway between our house and Phoenix is Blythe. Nobody wants to go to a heartfelt reunion in Blythe. <laughs> no. So, so, so we met halfway in Palm Springs, um, which was 30 minutes for me and three and a half hours for him. <laughs> um, but he did it. He did it without batting an eye. Didn't, I mean, it just... And, and I can just very much see myself doing that right now, just like about any parent would, just at the drop of a hat, they would go out of their way and drive for hours in the rain or the dark or the sleet or the snow to see their kid. And that's what my dad did. And Michelle, Michelle was nervous because she'd heard all the stories about this terrible human named Tom Ferris. And she was nervous and I was nervous. And my dad had to be nervous because he's thinking, I don't know what to expect. Is Matt going to tell me off? Is he going to say, leave me alone? He didn't know. But he was just taking it on faith. It's like, well, you know what? He called me. So we met in Palm Springs. And we, the very, the very first thing he did when we walked into the restaurant, he looked at the maitre d' and said, please show us to our table. You know, or I'll take my regular table. <laughs> it's like... You've never been here before. <laughs> and it kind of looked at him weird, and then he probably told us a joke. And it was just, it wound up being the most fantastic reunion we could imagine. And from then on, me and my dad, you know, we're trying, trying to make up for lost time. And it's amazing. It's fantastic. She, um, she couldn't figure out how the, um, the stories didn't match the person that she met. Because it turns out that people are complicated. And the person that my mom told us about isn't the same person that I knew. And the same person that Michelle met isn't the same person she hold the, that was told the stories of. And so we, um, we got to meet this just amazing man. And I would love to roll the credits, roll the end credits, because that's such a great Hallmark movie ending. Like, you know, my dad hug in slow motion, and then we freeze frame like this, and, and then, but that's, that's just not life. That's not how it works. Because after dating for about five years, I asked Michelle to marry me. You understand? I know the five years is like, what? You made her wait that long? But we were 16 when we started dating, so <laughs> we'll just leave that out there. Five years is really good. <laughs> But we were getting ready for the next chapter in our story. And though Michelle's encouragement and her, my improving relationship with my dad, I decided I wanted to um, go back to my birth name. I wanted to be Matthew Ferris. I was born a Ferris. I wanted to die a Ferris. And that was a big decision. That was a big deal. And so I did all the research pre-Google. Let that sink in. Because that was not easy. It turns out the state of California and Riverside County does not make it easy to figure out how to go through a legal name change process. And so we set a court date to go before a judge 
And before that, I had to tell my stepdad, who, who adopted us, who'd, who'd raised us, you know, for, for several years, and that was a hard conversation. But my, my dad was kind. He was kind. He didn't make me feel bad. He, um, he didn't make me feel, he didn't try to make me feel bad, didn't try to make me feel guilty, but, um, but it hurt him. It hurt his heart. And kind of, I felt like I was adding insult to injury was that, um, was that my mom had divorced him by this time. And so he was my dad. I called him dad. I loved him. And while we didn't have a, an amazing relationship, he was my dad. He saw me through junior high and high school and in the first years of, of being married. He was my dad. But the, um, but the day came for the court date, and, and Michelle and I were pretending to be adults in a room full of adults at court. And the, um, as I'm getting, you know, kind of waiting for the judge to call my name, I look over at the door, and, and my, uh, my biological dad's standing there from Arizona. Because he, he flew there, because he pre-Google figured out the court date, and and figure out when we were going to be there and how to get there. And, and pre-GPS, he figured out how to get to the courthouse. And so the, um, Michelle said, it was the most amazing look on your face because it was that moment that, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm in my early 20s. I got it all figured out. But my dad was there. So, of course, it's going to be all right. And just like... Um, just like God wants us to do, we, you know, I, I trust it. It's all going to work out. It's Dad's here. Of course, it's going to be fine. And that was a um, that was just a, a beautiful moment. The fact that he flew from Phoenix into Ontario, then drew to, drove to Riverside to be there. Then he had to catch a quick plane to get out of there right after it was over. We didn't even have time to have lunch because he just wanted to be there for that moment for me. And that was beautiful. But I became a Ferris. Michelle and I got married. And quite honestly, we had a bumpy first year. Um, but she stuck with me. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool. That's a big testament to her. <laughs> but the, um, before our first anniversary, I decided to join the Air Force. And so I, uh, I came home and told my loving and supportive but not excited wife <laughs> uh, that we were going to be joining the Air Force and that things were going to be changing. So after a three-month separation for, for training, we did a, um, our first assignment was at, was at Charleston, South Carolina. And it was there that I found God, found that God had never left my side, or, or more, more, more accurately, that he really, that he carried me through the other uh, situations. And I know it's kitschy and it's been said a thousand times, but that footprints in the sand, little poem or story, that's for real. <laughs> because it's when you look back and you think, you know what? That's when God carried me, because I could not have gone through that on my own. So we found this, uh, found an amazing church accidentally. And when I say accidentally, I mean we looked in the, the yellow pages, and there was one church that was printed in red. And so just, uh, you know, like the red letters in the Bible, <laughs> the red letters in the phone book led us to the church we were supposed to be at. 
And that was, um, apparently we found out later from, from one of the pastors was that put, paying for the extra for red letters in a phone book, that was a contentious issue in staff meeting. Because they thought, why are we spending the extra money? This is ridiculous. All the other churches are black letters. Why are we paying the extra for red letters? But if it hadn't been for those red letters, who knows where we would have wound up. But the fact that God orchestrated all these moving pieces and put in an ad in the yellow pages for Northwoods Baptist Church in red, it's just remarkable. It's amazing. So the um, so again, we weren't looking for a church to grow spiritually. We were just looking for a place, a safe place where we could go to get plugged into the community. Unfortunately, God saw right through our little networking idea, and then decided to reach into our lives and change us for the better. And through through the experiencing God Bible study with written by the written, written by uh, Henry Blackaby, God just became real to us. He became a real and, and impactful force that, that just wanted, wanted the best for us even when it hurts. So again, it's not being able to not seeing his actions but trusting his heart until you look back and say, oh, that's why you said no or that's why you said yes. It's also Charleston was where Caitlin joined our clan and it's where Michelle had her first heart surgery. And it's that heart surgery, that's when um, you realize just she's the one who had the surgery, but my heart hurt. And um, that's tough. That's tough to watch the one you love go through such pain. And I have no doubt that if not every person, almost every single person here has had to watch someone they love be in pain. And that is so much hard. I believe that's harder than the person recovering. <laughs> Because odds are they're probably on really solid drugs that they don't remember a thing. <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> you just get to watch them. And you get to love them. And you get to serve them. But it's tough to watch. And I know that, I know that it was just an infinitely small taste of what God felt when Jesus was on the cross. Because he saw Jesus being in pain. And he knew it was for the best. And he had to let it happen. Because that was the only way. And for Michelle's heart surgery, that was the only way she was going to stay alive. Was to go through this terrible thing, this terrible ordeal. And I know that, again, it's infinitely separated by degrees. But just to get a small taste of that. So in Charleston, I was an aircraft mechanic. And when I first told my stepdad what I was going to do when I joined the Air Force, he laughed and he laughed because uh, I'm not a mechanic at all. Like my first water pump that I took off of my uh, Chevelle, it made me cry. I wept openly because I was so frustrated because I hated turning a wrench so much. And so when I'm going to work on this 600,000-pound Aircraft, my dad laughed, and boy, he got a kick out of that. And so it turns out that I was a terrible mechanic, so after four years, I got to join the Space Nerds, and um, those were my people. So I got to join, join do satellite operations up at Vandenberg. I did my training there. We moved to Colorado, and that's where Kirsten joined, joined, our, uh, joined our family, was while we were in Colorado. So all four of us were born in a different state, so that's... Uh, 
That's fun, we each get to claim a different part of the country as our own. And one morning, my, um, while we were in Colorado, it was 2001 in December, we'd only been there a few months, and I get a phone call there, and early, early one weekend morning, and it's my brother, my younger brother who, uh, who lived with my, my stepdad at the time. He just kept saying he did it. He did it. He did it. I could not get a word in. He just kept saying he did it. And once I was able to calm him down enough to talk to me, he told me that my, um, that my stepdad had committed suicide. He'd reached a point where between um, divorcing my mom and, and work had been slow and he'd been having, you know, back pain and medication and bills piling up and, and I didn't know any of this. I didn't know about his pain and his medication and bills and and he, he just never told anybody. And so, you know, all the normal feelings of guilt and what if and why didn't I and all this, uh, the, the fact that hindsight is apparently 2020 because I think, oh, well, uh, I'd have done it perfectly, if only. But if only isn't, isn't a thing. It's just wishful thinking. It's wishing something was different. But, um... God was good in that time, too. Um, I mean, one of the things that just still, it, 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 it honestly, and I, I just say it creeps me out, but in a good way, was that, you know, my, my, my dad had shot himself. And then my brother found him. And my, my brother was emotionally fragile anyway. But somehow, my dad's head was covered over with a sheet after the fact. So when my brother came in, all he saw was, was, was my dad lying on the bed. And it wasn't until he saw that he wasn't waking up that he knew something happened. He called the police. But the fact is that he didn't have to see the horror of it. And I, I could just, I can just to this day imagine Jesus looking down and saying, you know, you don't have to do this, Gene. You, you don't. You there are people who love you. You know, call somebody. Call Matt, call Scott, call Adam, call anybody. But my dad didn't listen, and he made his choice, and, and you know, we're left with the consequences. And whether it's wishful thinking or not, I believe my dad's in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. And I have a reason for that, which we can talk about later, but that was something that uh, our family's still dealing with. So after we got through that, we spent a couple more years in Colorado. We, um, we moved to the Central Coast, and God was kind enough to allow us to stay here for way longer than most military folks get to. We were here for eight years, um, did a two-year stint in, uh, in North Dakota, then got to come back. When we first came, it was the second weekend that this building was open. Not this building, but the main building was open, and uh, Bill Hayden uh, welcomed us in. And it was him. It was, the, it was him as a greeter that got us to come back the second week and the third week. And eight years later and 13 years later, and here we still are. Because Bill Hayden reached in 
And he showed us around. He said, all right, you know, your oldest child will go here, your youngest child will go there, and you'll be in this Sunday school class. And he introduced us to, to some couples that were the same age as we were, and he was just, um, he was a blessing. So we did, as you all say this, you know, as like the church, is the greeters are important to the life of a church because they are the first people who are going to give a smile and give a handshake and it's way more than just holding the door. It is vital. So the, um, he showed us around, and this church showed us um, just love, just poured love all over us. We couldn't even get away from it, not even during Michelle's second heart surgery, because she thought it was so much fun the first time, why not have a second one? <laughs> so down at UCLA, she had, she had another heart surgery, and you know went through all the all the horrible trauma that dad brings and and fun stories with painkillers and weird hallucinatory cats that are coming in on you and just good times so the um again we get we had some time in north dakota and there we learned how important a community is because the weather itself is trying to kill you to kill you dead and so a community and your neighbors are all that are holding you from the thin line of oblivion. <laughs> um, but we got to come back after, uh, after having some amazing adventures doing, doing dog sledding and going ice fishing and going curling and doing karaoke. Just the weirdest times, the weirdest adventures. But we got to come back to Santa Maria, and it was just recently that I retired from the Air Force after 20 years. And then I had to go get a real job and wear real clothes and decide whether or not those clothes match each and every day. And that's, you know, there's like heart surgery, then deciding what to wear every day in the amount of stress that it causes. And which brings us up to today, because I have a wife who I adore and who seems to enjoy my company, remarkable daughters who amaze me continuously with their strength. A job that I enjoy, and most importantly, a God that never let me go. Through the deep waters of grief and the blazing fires of adversity. He's shown me that my story is sanctified and precious to him. And that it's to be used to point back to him. And through my story, I can be encouraged knowing that he will never leave me. And more importantly, that I can walk with others through their pain. That I can look at people and say, you know what? Suicide has touched you. It's touched me too. Let me walk with you. Your family's going through some medical issues. Let me, let me be with you. I understand. And I know obviously the specifics are different, but the pain feels the same. And just like me, I know that every person here and outside these walls, they have a story. It's our stories that allow us to meet others in their pain and need. And while the specifics are always unique, the pain can be shared. It's our charge as followers of Christ to learn the stories of others and walk with them through the joy and through the pain. As Paul wrote in Galatians 6.2, he said, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's really, um, it's pretty cool tonight. You know, the, um, the congregational reading, um, there was, there's that one line in it, that, um, that Chet said, where he said, you know, that to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's all God wants you to do. Use your stories. 
Use your stories to meet people where they are in their story. Oh, thank you so much. Um, let me pray. God, I thank you so much for, maybe not necessarily for the pain itself, but for walking with me through the pain and through the trials, knowing that, knowing that you do work all things for your good, because God, I do, I'll do my best to love you because I know you love me, Lord. I pray that every single person here, that we would, we would join with those who hurt and we would laugh at those who laugh and that we wouldn't get the two confused. I thank you for your goodness and I know you're going to be with us for the rest of this night and through the rest of this week, Lord. I pray that we'll see you and look for opportunities where we can, where we can see you at work and where we can join you in that work, Lord. I pray all this in your holy name, God. Amen.